0: Last week marked the 16th anniversary of the day that I found out that I was going to be a pastor in Lakeville, Minnesota. So how it works in our church body that we're a part of is that a pastor candidate goes to four years of college and then four years of seminary. And after those eight years, at the end of that eighth year, you go to a church service. And at the end of the church service, they read all of the names of all of the guys in the class in alphabetical order— and then they tell you where you and your family are going to be and where you're going to live. Now, if this sounds like, you know, a cruel joke on people, um, just understand we know this going into the process that this is going to be at the end where you're kind of just go wherever they send you for that first church. And so for me, it sounded something like this as they announced my name, Benjamin Bloomer, Minnesota District, Bethlehem Lutheran Church, Lakeville, Minnesota. And I'll tell you that the very first thought I had in my mind when I heard that was, where's Lakeville? And I hope, knowing that Carrie and I are not necessarily your prototypical farming couple, that, um, that it's somewhere near the Twin Cities. Well, um, in case you didn't know, I'm happy to announce that Lakeville was near the Twin Cities, and uh, we were really excited about all of the possibilities of, uh, of a growing community. Well, you get the call in May, and then, for us at least, we ended up moving in July. And so there's a lot of feelings that go through your thoughts and through your heart during that time, and mostly excitement, really. But once we sort of settled in July, I would say probably my biggest feeling was overwhelmed, I don't know if any of you have ever had to move to a new community, and not only are you moving, but starting a brand new job. And in my case, my first real job or career. And there was just a lot going on between unpacking and settling in and finding a bank and finding a doctor and finding a grocery store, which by the way, there was none in Lakeville even 16 years ago, except for Ingram's downtown. That was it. Otherwise you had to go to the cub in Apple Valley. And then there's all the stuff with starting a brand new career as a pastor. Now some of you have told me that you're very envious of my job because I only work a couple hours on a Sunday morning and that's it. That's what I thought too going into this gig and then come to find out like that's not the case. It was a little bit of a drastic understatement of how much I work and I— or pastor's work. And I was the only pastor, only staff person. The church was not, not big, about a hundred people or so, but there's still a lot of things to do. And in fact, one of my first tasks was going into the church office, and we didn't—the church didn't have a computer at the time, um, but they had file cabinets, like lots of file cabinets and going through all the files and all the folders that Pastor Fastenow had and to just wade through that. I mean, talk about overwhelmed. I didn't know what, what was up. My, my dad's a pastor and they, um, they helped move us in. So my dad really helped me those first uh, few days and weeks, or not weeks, but days, to just kind of get my, my bearings. And then my mom and dad said something that I wasn't ready for. They said, son, we have to go home now. <laughs> and they left us. And, and I was hoping my dad would stick around, you know, and be, you know, help me pastor. He did not. He had his own church to pastor, right? And I still vaguely remember standing outside the parsonage as my mom and dad start the long trip back to Florida. And you know what I'm feeling in that moment? Overwhelmed, but oh, we don't, that's right. We don't have this over here. I'm feeling left behind. (laughs) Like, the guy in that moment, at least when it comes to pastorally, that I I really needed, I felt, at that time, had to go home. He had to leave. He had to go back to Florida. And, And feeling overwhelmed as I walk back into the office filled with files and folders overflowing, right? I don't know if you've ever had a season like that where you felt left behind um, someone you really needed was no longer with you um, whether that be because of moving Um, in many of our cases i think you're right away thinking of maybe through death someone whether a spouse or um, a parent that's no longer with you and and when we're in these seasons where we feel left behind, or whether it's not that, but we just feel overwhelmed, we begin to ask questions um, that really get to the heart of our existence. Like, what is what is going on in this season of life? Who am I, and how am I going to get through this, and why am I here? And the reason why I bring all of this up, and that, that feeling for me of my dad leaving, and I'm left in this brand new season— is that that's exactly the way the disciples felt on the day that we're going to talk about today. So as you know, we're in this series called Hope Rising, and what we're doing is we're looking at a number of the appearances of Jesus after his resurrection. And the reason why he appeared to people was to show them that he was no longer dead that he was alive, that someone didn't steal his body. That's not why the tomb was empty, but that he indeed self-resurrected himself in the power of God and defeated death and did a victory dance on death's throat through his resurrection, knowing that not only he, but any of us who put our hope and trust in him can also have a victory dance on death's throat as God gives us heaven someday. And so the title Hope Rising really has two meanings to it, to be honest. One is that Jesus is the hope that rose. He is personified hope rising. And because he rose, now we also, every day, even in the midst of our darkest seasons, and even in those moments where we feel left behind, so to speak, also can have rising hope in each and every season. And before Jesus Left on the 40th day. Before he ascended into heaven, some of his last words were to help his disciples in this new season. It leads us to our first fill in. You see, when the big picture is clear, when the big picture of life and what it's all about and where it's going, when the big picture is clear, it will help guide you through seasons that are not clear. When we're understanding God's big-picture plan—not just for us individually, but for the world— it won't necessarily make every season clear. I've gone through some seasons of life that I still look back on and they're still kind of fuzzy. It will not make every season clear, but it will guide you through the fuzzy seasons, the seasons in which you're not exactly sure what God might be up to. And the truth of the matter is, every single one of us has been there. So to get that clarity and to watch as Jesus speaks to his disciples before he goes in a bodily form back to heaven, we're going to turn to the book of Acts. Acts is written by the same writer that wrote the Gospel of Luke. And the— the content of the book of Acts is essentially the history of the Christian church in the first century. And so Luke is writing um, to a gentleman who commissioned him to write this history. His name was Theophilus, and we turn to Acts chapter 1 beginning with verse 1. He writes, in my former book, Theophilus, he's writing to Theophilus, I wrote all about I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. We're going to look at that instruction today. Verse 3. After his suffering, he presented himself to them, And gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. You've heard Matt and I say numerous times throughout these last few weeks that Jesus stuck around for 40 days to prove to people that he was alive. This is not something we just conjectured or came up with. The Bible tells us why he stuck around. Here's one of those places to give people convincing proof that he was alive. Now, here's what God understands and knows even better than we do. The Bible has a lot of important teachings in it. In fact, everything in the Bible is important. But there is nothing, no teaching, that's more the foundation of our hope. There is no teaching that's more important than what happened to Jesus after he died. In fact, the first century pastor named Paul said, if Christ had not been raised, well then your faith is futile. It's worthless. We might as well pack up the band, take the everything down and go home this morning if Christ had not been raised. You'd still be in your sin. And so Jesus, as God, knew clearly how important it was to launch the church in a way where people knew because they saw with their eyes without a doubt that Jesus died and rose again. So he gave these convincing proofs for 40 days. Verse 4. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days post Easter, and he also spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Now, that's the part maybe that is not necessarily new to you, but you haven't thought about before. Not only was he appearing, he was also teaching. And one of the main things he was teaching is the kingdom of God and what that means. So, what does it mean that he was teaching about the kingdom of God? Essentially, What it means is that Jesus was helping the disciples understand the bigger picture. To better understand what it means that God is ruling and reigning. Because as we go through seasons of life, it doesn't always feel that way, that God is ruling and reigning. Sometimes life seems a little bit random. Sometimes life seems to be more difficult for those who follow Jesus than for those who don't. It doesn't always feel like Jesus is a king sitting on the throne. That's because we don't always think about or recognize what it means that God has a kingdom and what the kingdom of God is all about. Um, In fact, Jesus kind of hints at this hours before he died. He's bloodied, bruised, spit on, crown of thorns on his head— Pilate, the Roman ruler, is standing before him. And some of you might remember the accusation against Jesus that got him on the trial in the first place. Part of it was that he claimed to be a king and that the Romans would take notice of anyone who claimed to be a king. And as he's standing in front of Pilate, he didn't look like a king, not from a worldly perspective. And Pilate asks him whether he is, and Jesus responds by saying this. It gives us a little glimpse into what God's kingdom and rule is all about. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not about this world. It's not about power in this world. It's not about wealth and prestige. Jesus did not come to be the richest king or the most powerful earthly king or to conquer nations. What the Bible says is that Jesus came to serve instead of to be served. And in conjunction to that, the same thing is true for his followers. And so what Jesus is telling the disciples as he's talking to them about the kingdom of God is that they should not expect to be powerful or rich or to have a great earthly life because they're following the king. Because his kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is in heaven and it's in our hearts and he will rule and reign forever. Sometimes... It looks like, from a worldly perspective, that it doesn't matter whether we follow Jesus or not. Because oftentimes, from a heartbreak and disappointment perspective and difficulty perspective, Christians have just just as much, if not more, problems in life. But Jesus came to conquer death and sin. And so even if there's days where you don't feel like smiling, what it means that he has a kingdom not of this world is that you can have joy. And even if there are times where you're feeling like you don't have what you want in life, Jesus gives you reason every day to be thankful and to live each day with a grateful heart. And even at times where you're in a season where it seems a little bit fuzzy, and you're not sure what's next, that you can walk forward with peace because Jesus took care of that which we need the most, our sin. That's what his kingdom is all about. That's what he was trying to teach the disciples, that there's a bigger picture here. Verse 4. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. Verse 5. For John baptized with water, John the Baptist, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so this was uh, a little few days before... um, when this would happen. We know this day, the special outpouring of the Holy Spirit, as Pentecost. And it was a day in which um, the disciples were able to do some miraculous things, like speak in other languages, even though they didn't first purchase the Rosetta Stone. Um, They were just able to speak. And 3,000 people came to faith on that day. A special outpouring of the Holy Spirit they should be ready for. And then on that day that Jesus was going to leave them. Verse six, it says, they gathered around Jesus and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? (laughs) Now, if there's any teachers in the class today, I want you to imagine, I don't think this probably has ever happened to you, That you spent an entire class period or an hour teaching on something and going over it and over it and over it. And then at the end of the class time, you ask a question that gets at the heart of what you were teaching. And the student that answers gave the absolute wrong answer. Like didn't have a clue. Like was he listening at all? I think... Every teacher is kind of like smiling at this point and like, I've been there. This is exactly how Jesus is feeling. He's ready to pull out his hair. Like, we've just been talking about what it means that God is a kingdom. And the disciples' response is, oh yeah, um, is now the time you give us the power and the land and the prestige and you're going to kick out the Romans? Is, is, is now the time? It's like, what have you been thinking about, disciples? I've gone over this over and over and over. Now, To be really honest, I don't exactly know why the disciples seem so clueless all the time. But I do have a thought. I think they had ideas of what they wanted from Jesus and in their life. And when you have ideas for your life, it's hard to give them up. When you have ideas in how your life is supposed to go in your mind, it's hard to give those things up. And let me tell you this, it's not wrong to have ideas. It's not wrong to have goals. And it's not wrong to have plans. In fact, God wants us to have goals, ideas, and plans. But our goals, ideas, and plans are always, always, always subordinate and in view of God's bigger goals and ideas And plans. (laughs) Who of us in this room haven't had life circumstances that didn't go the way that we had wanted? Or marriage being harder than we thought? Or career not going in the direction we wanted it to? We all have ideas. And sometimes that's what makes a new season so difficult, because that wasn't in the spreadsheet. That wasn't on my plans. That's not the way that I had thought things would go. And in those moments, it's good to have a clear understanding of the big picture. Here's the first thing I want you to take home today. When life is a little fuzzy and you're feeling left behind or in a season of being overwhelmed, remember that there's a life that's longer than this life. This is so key to your feeling at peace through the seasons of life. In fact, it's so key that I want to illustrate it today so that you're not soon to forget it. So Mark, Tim, would you be be willing to help me for a second? I want to illustrate. Yeah, come on stage. I want to illustrate this point. So I'm going to have, oops, you guys uh, walk down to this end of the stage with me and grab this. Cool. Thanks for coming up. (laughs) Mark, if you could stand right here, and uh, I want you to hold on to this string here, okay? So this string is going to represent our existence. How long do we exist, would you say? In terms of lifespan? Existence. Existence. Forever? Yeah, good answer. Nice word. That was crintastic. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, uh, God gave us birth, and then our, our existence lasts forever, right? So you're going to represent birth. Here's a baby blanket for you. All right. Tim, I want you to come down this direction. And our life, our existence, goes on and on and on. And on, it says for, as Tom LeMay says in fusion, forever and ever and ever, right? And we're going to run out of string, so I'm just going to have you stand right here. Hold that tight with your dad there, okay? So let's pretend this string represents our entire existence. Uh, our soul lasts forever, okay? How long does life last on earth? Not trick question, huh? 75, 80. Okay, seventy-five, eighty. Yeah, I, I hope we make it that know, far. Yeah, too, <laughs> So I'm going to use this little paper clip to represent, on the scale of eternity, 75 to 80 years, right there at the beginning. And the truth is that to represent eternity, this could wind all the way through the auditorium. It could go across the Twin Cities. It could go on and on and on because eternity does. But when you look at your life, it's like this. In comparison. Now this is a really really important little span of time. Do you know what? What we trust and what we put our hope in and what we believe in this little bit of time makes a difference for the rest of it. This is a really short amount of time. It's called our time of grace, our time on earth. But what we come to trust and hold on to makes a difference for the rest of it because we're all spending eternity somewhere. And with Jesus, we get to spend eternity in heaven. Now, Mark, if you had the choice, God said, hey, Mark, I've got, I got a question for you. Either you can decide that I am going to, as God, give you all the joy, happiness, and pleasure here, or from here to there, which would you choose? It's like a game show. I'll take it all the way to the You're taking that one. Yes. See what's under the... That was the right answer, I think. Thanks. Yes. Th- there's no doubt that we would choose that. Guess what? God did too. He cares way more about this to that than your happiness here. Or that you have everything you want here. Or that things go right all the time here. That in fact, first of all, We shouldn't expect everything great here because we live in a sin-filled world. Secondly, sometimes he allows things to happen in our lives. Why? Because he recognizes that when we go through hardship here, it pulls us closer to him. And what he cares about is that you spend forever with him. (laughs) What would happen if we spent every day remembering this string and thinking about the difference between this and that, and that God sees it all, and how He works and allows things in our lives, is that we might spend this with Him forever. Because there's a life that's longer than just this life. Thanks, Kryn. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks, Tim. You can just yeah, can give him a round of applause. <laughs> Thank you. One other point that I want to hit today. There's a a life that's longer than this life. Let's go on to the next verse. He also said to them in those moments before ascending into heaven, he said, it is not for you to know the times or dates that the Father has set by his own authority. Times and dates of his return. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. What... Jesus is also saying to them is, I've got a job for you to do. And what I I want you to do is I want you to be a witness. Now, what's a witness? Here's the definition that I'm using today. Witness is simply someone who shares what they have seen or experienced. It's really easy to be a witness. You just share what you know, what you've seen, um, what you have experienced. That's what Jesus is telling them their role is after he leaves. The verse continues. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's the city that they were nearby. And they're probably thinking, you know, we got 11 guys. We got a few other people that are part of this movement. We can handle that. We can be witnesses in Jerusalem. But then Jesus didn't stop there. He said, and your job is to be witnesses in Judea. It's kind of like the county or the state that Jerusalem is in. That's a little bit harder. They might need to get some more help to be a witness in that far-ranging area. Then he says, and in Samaria? (laughs) Jesus was very specific with this one. You know what Jesus is saying by saying that you need to go to Samaria? He's saying you need to take this message even to people you don't always like. Because the Samaritans were hated by the Jews. In fact, if they were traveling, you know this, some of you, they would actually walk around Samaria to get to the northern part of Israel. This message needs to be taken to everybody, even the people you don't like, and then also even to the ends of the earth. And the disciples are probably thinking, I mean, look at us. You don't, you don't understand how big the world is, Lord. That is a long place and a big place. And being the first century, Jesus is probably thinking like, you don't know how big the world is at that point, right? And yet 2,000 years later, you know about Jesus and what he's done. Do you live in Judea? Do you live in Samaria? We are the ends of the earth. And the reason we know about Jesus is because There have been Christians throughout the centuries who understood their purpose and valued the work God has given them even more than their personal health or the length of their life. You see, there's a life that's longer than this life. And number three, there's also a purpose that's greater than this life as well. And that purpose, guys, is in the things that we say, the things that we do, the things that we post, the things that we pray about, the things that we're passionate about, that we are being witnesses to the greatest thing that's ever happened, the death and resurrection of Jesus and the kingdom of God that we get to experience forever. Now oftentimes when we talk about this at At Bethlehem or in churches, people are thinking in their brains and in their minds, especially in the culture that we have right now, like, that's nice and all, but I think faith is a personal thing, and I'm not really that good at sharing it anyway. I'll let someone else. Here's what I'll tell you, and these are are God's words, not mine. If you're a Christian, it's not an option. Part of living to the glory of God is being a witness. Now that doesn't mean that you have to be someone who can answer everyone's questions and every single question they have. I have eight-year seminary and college education and I can't answer every single question, okay? It doesn't mean that you're able to navigate the Bible so well that you find the perfect passage for every person. That's not what he's called us to be or do. It doesn't mean you have to be eloquent with your words, although some of you are, or this dynamic teacher, although some of you are. What does he call you to do? to think about the amazing difference that Jesus has made in your life. And even if you're not feeling it today, then you're not thinking long enough or hard enough about eternity. To think about the difference that Jesus has made in your life and to simply share that knowledge of what he's done with others. You see, guys, sometimes, life seems a little fuzzy because we're trying to find our purpose. And in life, life purposes do change. When the kids grow up and go out of the house, the purpose of mom and dads changes slightly. When you lose a job or change jobs, your purpose changes slightly. But as a Christian, there's one purpose, no matter where you're planted or what season you're in, that you can make a difference in people's lives that will last into eternity, into how we say and things and what, how we act and in what we do and what we share with them. So the disciples are taking all of this in. Verse 9, After he said all of this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cl- cloud hid him from their sight. Verse 10, They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. Have you ever left a helium balloon go up into the air and you just kind of stop and watch it, right? It's kind of how this is described as they see Jesus ascending. And they're looking up into the sky, and they're probably in part thinking similarly to how I was thinking a little bit. When my parents were leaving and my help was leaving me. <laughs> Except way more and a much more important help. What's this new season going to be like when I can't see and touch Jesus? They were feeling a little left behind, maybe. So, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them and they said, Men of Galilee, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? Quit standing around lamenting the old season, the the way things used to be, okay? I'm saying that to you. Stop lamenting the old season, the way things used to be, because there's work to be done. This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back someday, in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And just as the disciples were going to live their lives mindful of Jesus' return someday and what that meant. That's how we can find hope and purpose in every season. Our last fill-in, finding hope and purpose in every season by recognizing what Jesus has done for us, that we have a life that's longer than this life, that we have a purpose that's greater than this life, and we have a Lord and Savior who's going to return that we might spend eternity with him. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be reminded of your son's ascension into heaven. And before he left them physically or bodily, he encouraged them with the purpose and the bigger picture that you've given to all of us. Lord, help us every day, even in the the difficult seasons of life, to find clarity around the big picture. And may that clarity bring joy, hope, and purpose to every season. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.